Uh, so, Lord Jesus, I ask that you would uh, speak to us this morning. I ask you, Holy Spirit, to speak through me, and that we would hear from you, Jesus. Amen. May be seated. How's this work, George? Do I stand behind the table, or do I sort of uh, walk around? I just don't want to fall off. This is pretty high. <laughs> I'm kind of nervous up here. <laughs> it's all good. It's all good. Okay. Hey, my name is Jess. Jess Cantillon. Um, some of you know my, my parents, Jim and Kathy Cantillon. And uh, my, my mom was Kathy Kerr. She spent a lot of her life in Ottawa, a daughter of Howard and Kay Kerr. Uh, I'm about a fourth generation Pentecostal in the ministry, uh, but I'm an Anglican now. I married uh, Bishop Charlie's niece, and uh, so I married into the clan. And I've known George since about uh, uh, 2002, and um, it's been a, an amazing journey. I'm going to tell you a little bit about myself. Uh, we prayed before the service, uh, and George said, "I, you know, Lord, we just pray that uh, you know be our desire that this be about you and not about us." And even Jesse's sermon, that it'd be about uh, you and not about him. And then I told him afterwards, I, well, I better rewrite my sermon because at least half of it is about me. <laughs> so we'll, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll try and get to Jesus as well. Uh, I'm kidding, of course. <laughs> oh, no! <laughs> Who brought the heretic? Okay, uh, my name's Jess. I'm 39. I am married to Erica. We've been married 17 years, almost 18. Whoa. And... Uh, Four boys, we know how to make boys. Uh, I grew up in Israel. In 81, my parents were invited by the Israeli government to plant a church in Jerusalem. And so I joined them, not knowing that that was a big deal, and uh, experiencing the favor of God for the formative years of my Christian life. I went to Hebrew public school. I uh, learned math first in Hebrew, and so on. Uh, returned to Canada in 88, was encountered Christian culture for the first time. I didn't know there was such a thing. And uh, uh, then I lived a life in Canada for a good good portion. Uh, We returned to Israel in 2004, my wife and I and Jonah, who was then uh, just over a year and a half. He's now 13. And we went to work at this church that my parents had planted in the 80s. And, uh, and I went as the young adult pastor, as a worship leader, but first and foremost to do um, worship gatherings uh, where we rented clubs and theaters across the country and, uh, and worship Jesus. Uh, the point being that I really believe that as we spend time in the presence of God, uh, we, um, we then can, are equipped to go out. But only then are we equipped to go out. So if we go out in our own strength, it's going to come to nothing. It's going to fall flat. So the mission of this was kind of like pre-evangelism. Let's spend time in the presence of God together in the very places where we need to be light in the darkness and then come back the next Friday and shine as light in the darkness. And it was awesome. It was really an amazing time. It was uh, a thing that the whole community, which is pretty fractured in Israel, uh, Messianic community, they all gathered around and did this together. It was a really great thing, and um, it was awesome. Uh, we then became Anglicans officially um, through the process, a strange and long story. Um, but I ended up doing my curacy at uh, Christ Church in Jerusalem, 
with David Pelleggi. Um, but then, through international pressure, I faced the Anglican problem that sees you guys here today in this uh, theater and not where you began. And so we had to leave Israel, and we came back, and we found ourselves in the last place we expected to ever go, and that's Lenoxville, Quebec. It's a town of maybe 5,000 people, 7,000 when school's in session, and uh, there are already eight churches there. Okay, and the Lord said, I want you to plant a church here. It made no sense. But we did it because we felt strongly like the Lord said to do it. And about every third week, it was what we call a cantalon service. It was just us and our kids. And we just did the service. And then we went on to the next week and the next week. And of course, every week, I would lose my faith and then regain it. And then every week, I'd lose my faith again and then regain it. And... Um, but ultimately, I felt like the Lord said to do it, and so we just did it, and, uh, and the Lord brought the people, and the Lord uh, built a house, and, uh, and then we, uh, we got called to go to Atlanta, Atlanta, Georgia, and uh, you're wondering, why are you in Ottawa then? Uh, because uh, our visa to Atlanta has not come through yet, and in fact, it fell through. And uh, we're waiting for it to come through. And that was a year ago that we got the call. So we are literally waiting right now. Um, and such is the way of following God, I think, that um, you follow him, you're going to end up uh, wandering a little bit and uh, wondering why you're wandering and uh, and you all go through these moments, I'm sure. I'm sure I'm not the only one where you wonder what the Lord is doing and why he's doing what he's doing and if he's actually trustworthy. Because we wonder, don't we? Lord, are you really in control? Do you really know what you're doing? Are you sure I was supposed to lose that job, God? Can I really trust you with my kids in this ever-increasing secular world? Are you sure that I should be taking my wife and children to Israel right now? With ISIS on the border, stabbings every day. I know two, personally, who have been stabbed since I was there in September. How do I know you're going to provide, Lord? How do I know you're going to show up, Lord? But precisely in these moments, the moments that cause us to trust in chariots and horses, that cause us to trust in our money and in our influence, it's these moments that cause us to fall into old habits of trusting and worshiping the works of our hands, that we have to trust Him. That we have to say, your will be done, not mine even if we don't know how it's going to work out, even if I don't end up in Atlanta, because I may not end up in Atlanta. But whether or not it works out, the psalmist today, because I'm preaching from the Psalms, I love preaching from the Psalms, he assures us that God is faithful regardless. Which should leave us in a posture of open hands and soft hearts Trusting Him for our hopes and our dreams 
and for the future, and this applies to our children as well, which is difficult. The propensity, you see, to try and solve these things ourselves in self-righteousness or in unrighteous social justice. That means social justice without righteousness. The propensity to try and self-medicate, to blame others in these moments are all signs that we've forgotten that He is faithful. And I really believe that the Lord is in this process that Erica and I and our kids are going through right now, even though we're not there yet. I've just been, I've just been having a hard time remembering that He's faithful. Well, Psalm 85 today says that He is faithful. And now we can know this no clearer than the coming of the newborn baby Jesus, which we just celebrated a few weeks ago. So Psalm 85, if you have a Bible, you should open it and you should follow along because we're going to be sort of going through it chunk by chunk. And it'll be helpful to you if you can follow along. Um, It was written by the sons of Korah, who above all else knew the grace and the mercy of of God. It's because their priestly line, because they were Levites, should have been wiped out centuries earlier when their forefather Korah incited a rebellion against Moses and Aaron. He took two other guys with him, Datan and Aviram. And they said, Why should you, Aaron, be in charge of the high priestly duties? We're Levites as well. What makes you so special? And Moses and Aaron, you know, hit the ground and like, oh, Jesus, oh, Lord, have mercy. (laughs) They wouldn't have said Jesus yet. (laughs) And God got angry and said, let's have a showdown and I will show who I approve. And so Moses called Datan and Aviram and Korah to a showdown and said, bring your incense censers to the tent of meeting, and we're going to pray to the Lord, and whosoever incense censer lights, he is the true high priest. And Datan and Aviram and their families didn't even show up. Who are you to even call us to this showdown? Aaron and Moses. But Korah did show up. So they had the showdown, and what happened? Aaron's incense censor lit, and Korah and his people died on the spot. While Datan and Aviram thumbed their noses at the whole event from their tents. But then the Lord said, get away from the tents of Datan and Aviram because a big punishment is coming. And what happened is the earth opened up and swallowed them whole. The entire line of Datan and Aviram were finished. But not Korah's line. Korah's line was spared because at least he showed up to battle. Korah's line spared, though they were relegated to keep the door at the tent of meeting. From wanting to be the high priest in the Holy of Holies, they were at the farthest part possible. The way, that's the way the Jews see the presence of God. 
God lived in Jerusalem. He not only lived in Jerusalem, he lived in the Holy of Holies, not just in the Holy of Holies, but between the wings of the cherubim. The closer you walked to Jerusalem, the closer you were to the presence of God. It was like a bullseye. That's why Jonah, when he ran away from God, ran to the farthest parts of the earth because he assumed as a prophet that he wouldn't get the reception the further he was from Jerusalem. So in the economy of the priesthood, the further you were away from the Holy of Holies, the lower down the ladder you were. And so Korah and his sons were relegated to keep the door. In Jesus' day, the centurions even kept the door. So it was really the bum job of bum jobs. Though one of them, I guess, had a good uh, poetic side to him, so he wrote some psalms as well. But this son of Korah, who would be aware of his history and his shame and the redemption and faithfulness of God, wrote in Psalm 84, Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked and get swallowed up by the earth. That's our context. That was Psalm 84. Now we're in Psalm 85. And this son of Korah is thanking God for his faithfulness. Somebody certainly knows a thing or two about being grateful to God's faithfulness. And I think it's important to remember that Psalm 85 is a song. Um, That's something that gets missed in our English translations, even though Shakespeare did a good job. Uh, because in the Hebrew, it's full of meter, it's full of rhyme and wordplay, and it's really quite something. I'm going to read you just a little portion of it in Hebrew, just so you can hear, hear the poetry. And then that way you can see, okay, well, this is clearly a song. Okay, so here we go. Chesed ve'emet nifgashu. צדק ושלום נשקו. אמת מארץ תצמח וצדק משמיים נשקף. גם אדוני ייתן הטוב וארצנו ניתן יבולה. צדק לפניו יהלך וישם לדרך פעמיו. Did you hear that? You heard the rhyming? So if you're reading this in the Hebrew, you know it's a song. You also know it's a prayer because this is what the Jews pray. They pray the Psalms. Why is it important to remember that it's a song? Because songs have structure, simply. We sang songs with verses, pre-choruses, choruses, and uh, bridges. The bridges when you know Daniel started hitting the drum and getting louder and louder and louder and louder and louder and louder. And louder boom! You know, that's the bridge. Then you go back into the chorus. We know how it works. But if you know that there's structure to this psalm... Uh, you're going to start trying to understand what those sections are. And your Bible will probably have divided it already. Uh, I'm going to divide it like this. I'm going to say that uh, the sections are verses 1 to 4, 5 to 7, 8 and 9, and 10 to 13. So four sections, okay? 1 to 4, 5 to 7, 8 and 9, and then 10 to 13. Four sections. 
I'm not sure which is the verse and which is the chorus. I'm not going to go there. But I could see that there are sections, at least. <coughs> Excuse me. Okay, so the entire psalm deals with the question as to whether or not God is faithful. That same question that I'm asking, that many of you have asked, and you might be asking today as well. God, are you faithful? Are you really going to show up? Is the Lord faithful? And in this first section, verses 1 through 4, the psalmist introduces that there's a problem. We're going to focus on the Y-O-U's, the U's, okay? The Y-O-U's. Lord, you have been favorable to your land. You have brought back the captivity of Jacob. You have forgiven the iniquity of your people. You have covered all their sin. You have taken away all your wrath. You have turned from the fierceness of your anger. Restore us, O God, of our salvation and cause your anger towards us to cease. There's a problem, he's saying. While you have done all these things, God, verses 1 to 3, Verse 4 says we still need to be restored. We still need to be saved. Can you relate to that? I can. I know you've brought me this far, but I still feel lost. I feel angry and afraid. This is basically dealing with losing your faith mid-journey, which happens, like I said, when I was planting a church just about every Sunday. I'm sure you feel the same. I'm sure I'm not alone. Then he asks similar questions in the next section, but are there more to deal with the future? You have done this in the past, but are you going to be faithful in the future? So the second section, verses 5 to 7, start with this. We're going to focus on the will you. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again, that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your mercy, Lord, and grant us your salvation. Now, I don't know the entire context of this psalm. I focused mostly on the context of the writer. So some might suggest the psalmist is either dealing with another enemy at the gate or with the drought, which was always seen as a curse from God. If there's a drought, if there's no rain, it's a curse. If there's rain that comes in the middle of the summer, it's a curse because that will wreck the crops. The rain has to come between October and April. And that's it in Israel. Former and latter rains. So who knows what they're dealing with? But either way, they're dealing with the problem. But I do think that above all these things, the psalmist is going beyond. Just like when uh, the prophets say, rend your heart and not your garments. I think that the psalmist is dealing with the state of the heart. I think he's thinking bigger in this sense, more than just uh, what's going on at the gates. And thinking smaller at his heart. You see, the Jews above everything else, even a rebuilt temple, are waiting for Tikkun Olam, the fixing of the universe. For God so loved the world. In the Greek, it's the cosmos, which means all things that he created. For God so loved the universe, 
that he gave his one and only son. That's why the Jews have a problem with Jesus. Because they don't see that the fixing of the universe began in the hearts of men. With Jesus dying and giving himself for us, paying our price. And changing our hearts from hearts of stone to hearts of flesh. Circumcised bodies to circumcised hearts. But that's the business of tikkun olam. Beginning in our hearts. See, our world and universe has been critically wounded by man's rebellion against God, the Creator, doing our own thing, controlling our own destiny, fixing our own problems over submitting ourselves to God. And God, who let us go our own way, very well, if you want to do this, go ahead, subjected us to the fruit of our rebellion, which is ultimately broken bodies, broken relationships, and death. The Jews are waiting for the Messiah to come and fix it. And this psalmist is singing about it. And perhaps without knowing it, he's even prophesying. And we get the first hint of it at the end of the second section of verse 7. Adonai chazdecha ve'yeshuecha titen lanu. Show us, O Lord, your grace and give us your salvation. The word for salvation is Yeshuecha. Jesus' name is Yeshua. Show us, O Lord, your grace and give us Jesus. Amen. Now, he doesn't say give us Jesus. He says, show us your salvation. Give us salvation. But we know, because we have the benefit of hindsight, that that's exactly what he's saying. Give us Jesus. So the first section says what? There's a problem. The second section says, are you going to be faithful in the future? And we get a hint that the proof will be in the pudding, which is Jesus. And now in this third section, after hinting at Jesus, the psalmist goes into prayer. Because we know that prayer is what? 90% listening and maybe 10% talking. And he says this in verse 8, I will hear what God the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace. The word for peace is shalom, which refers to the tikkun olam. Shalom in, in Hebrew is how you say hi to one another. But it's also, it means full, complete, settled peace. And he will speak shalom. Because only the Lord can fix the broken state of humanity. He's going to speak peace to our souls at war against us. He's going to speak peace to our bodies which are deteriorating by the heartbeat. He will speak peace to our failing marriages. He will speak peace to our broken families. He will speak peace to our crooked sexuality. And he will speak peace to our self-righteousness and to our feeble efforts. He will speak peace. 
I will hear the Lord in verse 8. I will hear the Lord and what the God, I'll hear what God the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace to his people and to his saints, but let them not turn back to folly. Surely, verse 9, his salvation, surely his Jesus is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. This is the peace about which the psalmist is singing. Cosmic peace. Complete and total and utter peace. Just like John the Baptist's dad, Zechariah. And I, I mean, this Christmas, I couldn't read any of these, uh, these sections where the old men are blessing the babies. I just couldn't do it. So I might not be able to do it now. I don't know. <laughs> but just like John the Baptist's dad, when he... Zechariah, when he prophesied while holding his newborn son in his hands. The newborn who would be the forerunner for a much more marvelous newborn soon to follow. He said this, Blessed is the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people, and he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. And he spoke by the mouth by the, of his holy prophets who have been since the beginning of the world that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant the oath which he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life And you, child, will be called the prophet of the highest. For you will go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways. To give knowledge of salvation to his people by the remission of their sins. Through the tender mercy of our God with which the day spring from on high has visited us. To give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Jesus. This is our fourth section. Jesus. The first section deals with the fact that there's a problem. The second one, are you going to be faithful in the future, God? The third one, we pray because only God can bring peace. And so hearing the psalmist's prayer, God responds in speaking of the birth of the Savior. Verse 10. Mercy or grace and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed. Now, you should be thinking sex here because this is an intimate union. Between grace and truth. Righteousness and peace. They have produced fruit. Truth shall spring up out of the earth. And righteousness shall look down from heaven. Yes, the Lord will give what is good. And our land will yield its increase. And that fruit is Jesus. 
Righteousness in verse 13. Righteousness will go before him and shall make his footsteps our pathway. So the problem presented at the outset, despite the doubting and the worry, has been solved. And in Jesus, we have peace. In Jesus, we have hope. In Jesus, we have joy. Because he's made true on his promises. Because he loves us. Because righteousness and truth have kissed And so here we are now, without worry, with our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and the finisher of their faith, trusting Him, even when it seems impossible to trust. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we... uh, We thank you for your word uh, written. We ask you, God, that you would uh, open up our hearts to receive Jesus today. For those of us who don't know you this morning, I pray, God, that you would invite us to know you. You'd open up our hearts to know you today. And if you're in that position, all you have to do is say, Jesus, I want to follow you. I understand, but I want to follow you. And he will speak peace into your life this morning and forever. So God, our hearts are yours, our lives are yours, and we trust you with everything we have. In Jesus' name, amen.